Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll get an overview of what to expect from this year's flu season and why it's important to get your flu shot. This year, influenza vaccine has different components to reflect what we expect to circulate in the Northern Hemisphere. Then we'll learn about congenital heart defects from a pediatric cardiologist at the Children's National Health System who got his start at Upstate. After 1980, we really got going with the better imaging, better medicines, better teams, and different surgeries that were developed. That's when survival rates really improved and we'll discuss some interesting research on depression, antidepressant use, and obesity. Obesity is a very multi-determined factor. There is a lot going on, and it's what we call like multi-determined, multifactorial. Stick with us for HealthLink on Air right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a pediatric cardiologist from the Children's National Health System will discuss the birth defect that affects 1 in 100 babies. Then, the new medical dean at Upstate Medical University shares his research on depression, antidepressant use, and obesity. But first, a pediatrician specializing in infectious disease explains why it's so important to get a flu shot this year. It's almost flu season, so today we'll talk about what we need to know about vaccination this year with Dr. Yana Shaw. She's an associate professor of pediatrics specializing in infectious diseases. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start out by asking whether you can predict what this year's flu season is going to be like. Well, I wish I had a crystal ball, but um, I, I can't, and um, um, I don't think anybody can. Uh, flu um, is a virus that uh, changes its appearance every year and um, makes it very difficult for us to predict uh, how severe or how broadly spread the influenza season is going to be. So we just have to be prepared. We just have to prepare, yeah. All right. Well, now who needs to get a flu vaccine? Well, it's uh, recommended that um, everyone six months and older gets vaccinated and against influenza. Um, there are very rare exceptions for people who cannot get vaccinated, and those would be people who um, might have had severe reaction to um, influenza vaccination previously. But that's not very many people. That's quite rare. Okay, so even pregnant women? Pregnant women actually should get vaccinated because they are considered one of the high risk for severe influenza. And then what about people with a compromised immune system? Is it safe for them to get a vaccine? Yes, for most of them it is safe. Um, um, There are actually other people who would be considered at high risk for influenza vaccination, people who have underlying chronic conditions and asthmas who are very young or old. Um, uh, That um, should be a priority group for vaccination. Uh, But uh, it might be best that they discuss their condition with their provider who can um, uh, explain and um, determine whether influenza vaccination would be safe for them. Okay. Now, tell tell me what a vaccination does. If if I get a flu vaccine, does that guarantee that I'm not going to get the flu? 
So it's not. Um, what vaccines do, and specifically influenza vaccines uh, that we recommend this season, what they help they educate immune system about flu. Essentially, what they do, they prime their immune cells that then develop um, antibodies that will protect you from severe disease. So the vaccine will not protect you from infection per se, but it will protect you from severe disease and death, which is what you really want. Um, um, you may get a cold and flu-like illness with them, even if you're vaccinated, but you will not end up on ventilator and, and you won't die. So it should be more of a mild disease if I encounter it at all. Exactly. So the vaccine it. helps to modify the severity of the disease if it doesn't protect you from the disease. Okay. All right. Um, and I know that we're, we're talking about this at the beginning of flu season. Is there a deadline for getting the vaccine? Like a lot of college kids are away. Would it be okay for them to wait and get a vaccine when they come home for Christmas break? Mm -hmm. Or is that too late? So it's recommended that we vaccinate as soon as vaccine is available because we know the immunity lasts for the influenza season. So if um, anybody uh, who is interested in va getting vaccinated, I would not wait and I would not delay um, the opportunity to, to get early protection because we know that you will be protected and stay protected for the whole influenza season. So get it as soon as you can. As soon as you okay. can. Now, do we know how many people follow through and actually get vaccinated for flu each year? Or is it a good majority or no? So we still struggle with influenza vaccination. Uh, in general, uh, public um, has um, uh, low confidence in influenza vaccine and uh, um, our vaccination coverage is not ideal, actually suboptimal. Um, that's why I think um, hopefully this piece uh, that we are airing on Health Link will help to educate public and encourage them um, to, to get vaccinated so they can be protected. Well, let's dispel some of the myths that maybe are keeping people from getting vaccinated. Some people think they got the vaccine last year, so they're good. But that's not true, right? That's not true. Uh, influenza virus... Um unfortunately, um, changes every year. It's a virus that mutates very quickly. So influenza vaccine that was designed for last year will, is unlikely to protect the individual this year. And in fact, this year influenza vaccine um, has different components um, to reflect what we expect to circulate in the northern hemisphere. So uh, prior influenza vaccinations will not protect you. Uh, from this year uh, influenza infection. So this year's vaccine contains multiple strains for what's predicted to be big? Yes. So currently we have um, uh, two different types of influenza vaccines. They contain either three strains or four strains. Uh, the four strain vaccine uh, offers a broader coverage. It includes two A strains and two B strains. Um, which are most likely to be encountered uh, during the 2017-18 influenza season. Okay. Now, I've also heard some people uh, believe that if they get a vaccination, they're going to get sick. So, uh, yeah, that's a common myth. Uh, we hear that um, from uh, patients and uh, parents and uh, public, that's not possible. Um, influenza vaccine um, is uh, contains strains that are um, uh, dead components. So they are what we call antigens. So what they do, they stimulate, they educate the immune system, but they 
are incapable of making you sick um, or infect you because those components are not um, able to replicate in your body. So, you know, an influenza vaccine can give you some side effects, and they're common, such as low-grade fever. You can get achy or tired. You can even get a sore throat after influenza vaccination. But uh, but that's not the flu. That's not the flu. Um, and in fact, when you get those side effects, it's just a marker of the immune system doing its job. Oh, okay. So that's sort of a good sign that it's, it's working. It's a good sign that your body's working and learning. <laughs> um, are there other common fears that you hear from people who say they don't want to get a vaccine because... Um, so safety concerns um, people bring up. Uh, they bring up the concern you mentioned, you know, I don't want to get a shot, I'll get sick from it. Um, other common myths include people don't feel they are at risk, uh, they feel they are healthy otherwise, and uh, therefore they don't need to be vaccinated. Um, this unfortunately is uncommon, and um, I would just like to remind um, listeners that even during the 2009 pandemic, we had a severe influenza season back then. A um, large proportion of people who got very sick and died were young, healthy people. So not the commonly identified high-risk groups that uh, we think about elderly, very young people with uh, other chronic conditions. So. Um, influenza is severe and can affect healthy and unhealthy people okay. and kill. Okay. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Yana Shaw. She's an associate professor of pediatrics specializing in infectious disease. Uh, so let me ask you, uh, kids especially seem to like this nasal spray option that we had um, a few years ago, but that's not an option anymore. Is that right? Currently, it's not an option. The nasal spray uh, was a vaccine that uh, contained what we call attenuated virus, which means the virus was weakened. Um, but currently, this type of vaccine is not recommended because it has been shown that it's not very effective in protecting uh, people. Um, so nasal sprays... Um, um, influenza vaccines are not available. So it's the, a shot. It's, it's a the shot. only option. Yeah. Okay. Now, what about um, senior citizens when they go to get their vaccine? Um, are they also recommended to get a pneumonia vaccination as well? Correct. So there are a multitude of uh, different vaccines that elderly should receive. Uh, influenza and pneumococcal vaccine, if they haven't received it, is um, another one. Uh, there's also um, vaccine against zoster um, that is recommended for elderly people. So um, I would recommend that they talk to their provider and uh, ask uh, his or her advice at what other vaccines they should receive when they come for influenza vaccination. It's a good opportunity to just kind of review. Review and maybe get uh, caught up right then. Okay. Now, uh, senior citizens are at a higher risk um, for side effects from the flu if they get the flu? So, correct. So senior citizens are at higher risk for complications from influenza virus. So they can get sicker from it. They can develop severe pneumonia, um, end up on a respirator, or um, potentially die or have prolonged hospitalization. Are there other um, uh, people in the community that are also at a higher risk? 
yes, they are. They are uh, children who are uh, young. Uh, you know, typically we think of children less than three or five years of age. Uh, pregnant women at high are at high risk for complications from influenza virus. Uh, people who have underlying asthma, have diabetes, have sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis. Um, there is a list of uh, conditions that will predispose you to particularly severe influenza. So probably the people with um, chronic medical conditions, their physicians are probably on top of this to make sure they get the flu vaccine? Do you... In general, providers um, are good about keeping running lists of people who uh, should be prioritized when it comes to influenza vaccination. Um, we in our clinic, uh, we have uh, you know list of patients with chronic conditions who are called as soon as we receive influenza vi- uh, vaccine to make sure we get them vaccinated early. Um, so if if your provider hasn't called you and you have one of those chronic conditions I mentioned, I would encourage you to you call your healthcare provider and inquire about flu vaccine. Yeah, you mentioned that in previous years we've had shortages of flu vaccine, right? Yes, yeah. There, you know, flu vaccine is one of those that diff- can be difficult to produce and can be difficult to produce in time for vaccination because it's a vaccine that's made in eggs. Um, so this year, however, it does not appear there's going to be any shortage of influenza vaccine supply. Okay. Well, you mentioned it's made in eggs. So because um, when you go get the vaccine, you're always asked if you have an egg allergy. Mm-hmm. What's that about? Are, you, are people not able to... So in past, uh, we uh, did not recommend that people who had severe allergy to eggs that uh, they receive influenza vaccine that was made in eggs. Uh, however, those recommendations have changed recently, and um, egg allergy is no longer uh, considered con- uh, contraindication, which means, you know, even if you have egg allergy, it is safe for you to receive influenza vaccine. Do you, um, this may sound like a silly question, but I know va- vegans don't eat eggs. Mm-hmm. Are they um, not wanting to get a vaccination because it's made in eggs? Do you ever encounter that? So that's an interesting question. Uh, I have not personally encountered um, that um, resistance or hesitation to vaccination. Um uh, whether vegans would um, feel conflicted about using vaccine that was made in eggs. Uh, they do have other options. There are vaccines that are egg-free. So they could inquire about uh, about that type of vaccine and still get safely uh, vaccinated. Okay. Well, let's talk about where people, where do you recommend people get vaccinated? So um, nowadays we are fortunate we have uh, multiple options where one can receive influenza vaccine, um, whether that's with the healthcare provider uh, or uh, pharmacists in uh, New York State are allowed uh, to vaccinate as long as they are properly uh, trained and licensed. Um, most pharmacies offer flu vaccinations and they even process the billing for their patients. So um, this should be one of the easiest uh, ways to get uh, vaccinated. Sounds like it. Well, thank you. My guest has been Dr. Yana Shaw, an associate professor of pediatrics specializing in infectious disease. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, 
how survival rates are improving for babies born with serious heart defects on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. With me by phone today is Dr. Gerard Martin. He's a pediatric cardiologist at the Children's National Health System in Washington, D.C., where he's the CR Beta Professor of Cardiology. Dr. Martin is a native of Binghamton who graduated from Syracuse University and got his medical degree from Upstate Medical University, and today he's one of the nation's foremost authorities on congenital heart disease. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, you're welcome, Amber. It's good to uh, be on the uh, radio in upstate New York. (laughs) Well, I was surprised to learn that this birth defect, congenital heart disease, impacts one in a hundred babies born. I hadn't realized it was that prevalent. Well, Amber, you're uh, exactly right, and it's one of the biggest points I try to get across to uh, parents and to health care providers. Uh, congenital heart disease, or some people say congenital heart defects, are the most uh, common uh, birth defect in the United States, impacting, as you said, nearly one out of every hundred live births. When we say congenital heart defects or congenital heart disease, what sorts of defects um, are included in that? Okay, that's a Uh, Great question, Amber. Uh, Congenital heart defects are probably over 100 different conditions that impact the heart. You know, with acquired heart disease, the heart disease that adults get, where it's the cholesterol, smoking, obesity, and diabetes-related problem that causes narrowing of the small arteries on the surface of the heart and results in heart attacks or hypertension in adults is pretty much one disease. Congenital heart defects are a myriad of defects that impact the heart, which is forming while you're, it is actually beating during fetal, fetal life. So we talk about uh, simple defects and more complicated defects. Uh, and so, and we describe those on the basis of how easy they are to treat. So the simple defects, quite easy and have an excellent outcome where our more complex defects uh, are a little bit more tricky to treat and have a little less outcome. Uh, and or we can break them into the categories of defects. Uh, about half of the problems are simply holes in the heart, a communication between the top chambers, the atria, or the bottom chambers, the ventricles, or a vessel in between the great arteries called the patent ductus arteriosus. There are also blockages, simple blockages and valves or arteries that account for about 20% of the defects. And then the, uh, the, the conditions that result in cyanosis, the so-called blue baby conditions, and that's about 15%, which is something called transposition and tetralogy, 
And then lastly, the really complex conditions, which are 15%. And these are things that there's a combination of a hole with a missing chamber or a missing valve with, or a, a, a missing artery that can uh, be much more difficult to repair. And we talk about correcting it, but we don't really correct it. Are these things that um, affect premature babies more more than full-term babies? So uh, the overall prevalence, as we stated, is about 1 in 100. And certainly uh, babies that have congenital heart defects uh, may be born preterm. Uh, and if they are born preterm and are small size, that can impact the the treatments they receive. Um, so as a group, uh, there are more that are born preterm or the more that are impacted by low birth weight. So I, what I was wondering, I mean, are some of these um, defects things that, that the baby just hasn't developed enough? Like, would they heal themselves if they were in the womb longer or, or not? No. Okay. The, the heart forms around six to eight weeks into a 40-week pregnancy. And at, at that time, it is a simple tube. And that simple tube undergoes a series of twists and turns, and it develops uh, valves, and it, and it develops chambers and arteries. So that, that simple tube has to undergo this whole complex change, and it really has completed that change by about 10 to 12 weeks. So a oh. simple tube is, turns into uh, four chambers and two arteries and two sets of veins that come back to the heart, uh, all in a matter of six to eight weeks. And then after 12 weeks, the heart simply has to grow uh, and develop, and the the muscle becomes more mature, and the and it is really a growth factor after 12 weeks. So, are some babies known to have um, a heart defect before they're born? Some babies are found uh, prior to birth. Uh, we have a special field called fetal echocardiography. And uh, this is where we have special ultrasound techniques that can look at the fetal heart starting at around 12 weeks. Uh, we Women come to us because an obstetrician sees something on the ultrasound that looks like there's a problem and they send them to us. Other times it's because a, a, a woman has a high risk factor, a, a family history of heart defects, or a maternal condition that we know might impact the baby, like diabetes or uh, lupus, which huh. can impact the fetal heart during its development. All right. Well, once uh, a defect is known, how, how are they treated? The uh, treatment... Uh, comes in several different types. We, um, we always start off with, with medical treatment, uh, but we then, for, to actually correct things if it's necessary, we have both surgical interventions and catheter-based interventions. Um, surgery 
for congenital heart defects began in 1938. It's an interesting story. There was a rule that a, a good surgeon would never touch the heart. Uh, even uh, with trauma, uh, it, it was kind of unheard of in the 20s and 30s to actually touch the heart. It was kind of a taboo. Hmm. But uh, Dr. Gross in Boston uh, treated a condition in a, a young girl called uh, with patent ductus arteriosus. He actually did it when his boss was out of town. Hmm. Uh, he had practiced in an animal lab with dogs, and uh, this was a common condition. It was one of the things that we could diagnose easily in the 1930s because of a, a very uh, characteristic heart murmur that, that the children would have. And dogs tend to have this thing. So he actually learned how to treat it in dogs. And his boss told him, don't ever do this in a child. And his boss went on vacation and he did it while the boss was on vacation. Wow. And it was successful. And that started the field of cardiac surgery for children. He got fired and got rehired and actually became one of the most important early uh, surgeons for congenital heart defects. So wow. it was a great story. <laughs> so we talk about the early era. The early era was from that first surgery in 1938 up until around 1980. And, and surgery was predominantly the way we dealt with it, but our, our surgery was not so good. Um, some of the some of the we didn't have the medicines we didn't have the accurate non-invasive detection we didn't have the teams set up to take care of children and as a result the mortality and morbidity of of surgery was quite high uh, after 1980 we really got going with better the better imaging better medicines better teams uh, and different surgeries that were developed over that 40-year period, and that's when survival rates really improved. Uh, you know, prior to 1980, the uh, survival could be 60% for some conditions or 50% for some conditions. And after 1980s, that that came down to uh, survive, uh, the survival improved to probably close to 80%. And now in 2017, the survival is almost 97% for children with heart defects. Wow, that's huge. Uh, and, and then in the 1980s uh, began this thing called catheter intervention, where you could actually put a balloon in the heart and open up a blockage. Um, you could uh, put a a specialized catheter in the heart and actually make a hole, which helps some of our blue babies. Uh, and this catheter-based intervention really took off. So a lot of the simple things are now treated without, without surgery. Children come in in the morning, have a procedure where we put a catheter, a small like, piece of spaghetti tubing into the vein or artery in the leg, advance it into the heart, and we can now open blockages, we can close holes, and we can even replace valves now uh, without having to open the chest and use the heart-lung machine. Wow. Wow. Well, do we know um, the cause of, of heart defects in babies? We uh, are 
increasing our knowledge about the cause of heart defects in baby. I think at the time that I studied uh, in Syracuse, we used to talk about about 4 to 8% of the babies having genetic causes. And now with the whole human, human genome being discovered, we now know that that 4 to 8% is really 15 to 20% of the conditions can be attributed to a single gene abnormality or a group of genes that are abnormal or a whole chromosome that is abnormal in the child. 2% we think are environmental causes. It might be alcohol, it might be a medication, uh, a drug that's, that's causing the heart defect. But still 80%, we really don't know uh, we like to use a fancy word called multifactorial that makes us sound smart. And when we say multifactorial, we're, we're saying that there's probably some genetic predisposition with an environmental trigger. In other words, something happens during that pregnancy, a cold or an infection or something that triggers a circumstance, that triggers a gene that then results in an altered development of the human heart between that six and 12 week gestation. Oh, interesting. Well, your research and advocacy has led to some uniform screening for um, congenital heart defects. Can you explain sure. what that is? Another way that we can break down congenital heart disease and can be by looking at a group of the defects that we call critical, critical defects. These are defects that if they're not found in the first hours or days or weeks after birth, that child, if they're sent home from the hospital, can suffer a death at home, almost like a crib death, but we wouldn't call it a, a SIDS because it, it was actually due to the congenital heart defect. And the problem was is that we, the physical exam was only about 50% accurate in finding all the babies at the time of discharge from the hospital. Hmm. A murmur may or may not be present in some of these life-threatening conditions. And the human eye can't see the cyanosis or the blueness of, that some of the babies have. Um, and so babies were being sent home, probably about a third to 40% of babies were being late detected. And as a result, there were more deaths and or more babies that got sick prior to their repairs. Now, what we've added in the United States is that every baby, before they leave the hospital, We've advocated that every baby has their oxygen level measured by a simple test called pulse oximetry. This is something that probably anyone that's gone to the emergency room for a problem has had a, a little probe put on their finger. It emits a light. That light uh, goes in and it bounces off the red blood cells and the and the capillaries in your finger and the wave comes back and it can measure the amount of oxygen in your arterial blood. So that tells and them how well the blood is circulating? That's right. Well, not how or well it's oxygen? circulating. It can tell you if your 
the arterial blood has a normal level of oxygen. Babies with critical congenital heart defects have lower levels of oxygen in their blood. And unfortunately, the human eye can't see that accurately. And we've had this test around for 20, 30 years, and we've never applied it to the population to, to, to make discharge from the newborn nursery safer. So a number of us went and testified uh, before a, a Health and Human Service Committee uh, several years ago. We then started uh, getting the large medical societies to endorse the this is like the American Heart Association, American Academy of Pediatrics, American College of Cardiology. And then we went to Secretary Sebelius at Health and Human Services. And she decided that this was a good thing to add to the recommended uniform screening paddle. You know, all babies used to get a, a their heel pricked and they would get tested for certain genetic conditions. And these conditions were probably 10 times less common than congenital heart defects but those were the ones that were chosen to screen for. And and now we've added the pulse oximetry, and as a result, we're catching babies before they leave the hospital, and uh, we're we're saving more lives. Very good. That's very good to know. Thank you so much for being here. My guest has been Dr. Gerard Martin, a pediatric cardiologist and Upstate graduate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, is there a connection between depression, antidepressant use, and obesity? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Are you depressed because you're fat, or are you fat because you're depressed? And are antidepressant medications helping or hindering this vicious circle? To talk about this, we have with us today Dr. Giulio Licinio. He joined Upstate this summer from the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute in Australia. He held previous posts at UCLA, the University of Miami, Yale University, and the Australia National University. Dr. Licinio is board certified in psychiatry, and at Upstate, he's the dean of the College of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Licinio. So you noticed a rise in the use of antidepressants and also the rise in obesity rates in Western societies, and you found the possible connection had not really been explored in depth, right? Yes. So tell us uh, about that. How did you get involved? So um, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be here and to talk about a topic that's of great uh, passion and interest to me. So the rise in obesity is amazing. If you look every year, the rates go up systematically year after year. And I think people's habits have changed, but not that drastically from one year to the next. So yes, there is fast food out there. Yes, there is. There are computer and computer screens and people, you know, driving more and doing, you know, spending less time doing physical activity. But I don't think this has really um, 
gotten substantially worse from one year to the next. And the problem with obesity is that if you look at the rates, they really go up and up and up and up, you know, relentlessly every single year. So I, yeah. they doubled since 1980 and yes. then um, f a jump from 15% to 30% for childhood obesity? Yes, exactly. Okay. And so, um, so my big question is that, yes, children are spending a lot of time in front of the computer, but are they spending substantially more time in front of the computer this year than they were last year? And so, and the rates of obesity keep going up drastically. So I keep thinking, you know, what else could be there that is also increasing at the same time that could contribute to explain uh, what's happening with uh, body weight? And again, obesity is a very multi-determined factor. So uh, it's not only, you know, you eat a little bit more or you exercise less or other things happen. There is a lot going on and it's what we call like multi-determined, multifactorial. I think so there are many contributors so what I'm going to be talking about with the antidepressants I think is just one of the contributing factors it's not the explanation but I but think that's what you yeah, focused on yes, for but your I research. think it's like a missing link that people were not looking at before so is it true antidepressant prescribing is up nearly 400 yes, so percent since 1988 and that keeps going up drastically every year and every year it goes up higher and higher and higher just like the rate of obesity so I thought you know that there may be something here that these two things keep going up in parallel, and each year one goes up a lot, the other one goes up a lot, and next year one goes up a lot, and the other one keeps increasing. So I thought, what could the connection be? How can we explain this? So one thing that's also important in terms of antidepressant is that you have what people are taking today, but you also have what we call antidepressant exposure. So about half of the people who are put on antidepressants, they stop them by themselves. Without doctors telling yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. So the studies that have looked at that, they show a rate of 40 to 60% of people stopping by themselves. And the thing is this, if you have a fixed pool of people, and if they stopped, the rates of prescription would be going down because there are fewer people taking them, but the rates keep going up. So what I think is happening is that uh, different people are then taking the antidepressants. So some people stop, but then other people and more begin. So you have uh, the rate of overall exposure is enormous. And when you look at health surveys, many people don't even ask, have you been on antidepressants in the past? People typically ask what medications are you on today? So if you were on an antidepressant and stopped last year, it doesn't even show on most surveys. So um, I believe that the rate of the numbers of people exposed to antidepressants is really high. Higher than we think. Much higher than what we think. So how and so what contribution could they be making to uh, obesity? Uh, so it's hard to test this in people initially because you don't want to give them to people and then just test the effect and make people obese, which is not very ethical. So we did that in animals. So we created um, a condition of chronic stress in which after you do that, the animals behave as if they are depressed, so they have low energy, they don't go for things that they would normally do. If you put them in a beaker of water that they would normally swim, they don't swim so much. So they, they behave depressed. And so we gave antidepressants, which reverses that, and that's very well known. So we just replicated that. But then what we did, which was new, is that we stopped the stress and the antidepressants, and then we gave them high-fat diet. Because it had been shown that animals, uh, they don't typically gain uh, weight on antidepressants, but the regular rat chow is not very palatable, so it's hard for them to get fat on that. So we gave a high-fat diet that induces obesity, 
And then what we show is that the animals that had the exposure to the antidepressants, um, even uh, 11 months later, they were still uh, substantially uh, growing faster and becoming bigger than the animals that had never had the antidepressant. So uh, this exposure to antidepressants in the context of a high-fat diet made them gain much more weight than they would otherwise gain. Even though they're not still taking yes. this medication, yeah. uh, it's still having an effect on their body? Yes. And then we, uh, the rat lives for about two years. So that would be 600 days. So we tested them for 300 days. So it's about half of the animal's life. And towards the end of the 300 days, they were still gaining more weight than the animals that never had it. That's interesting. Does that happen with other drugs that you're aware of? Not so much. There was a line of uh, research looking at that. Um, and people were showing that there are delayed effects of drugs. And now there's a whole field of study called, the, called epigenetics showing that there are some events and drugs could be amongst them that changes your DNA a little bit, and it's called methylation, so it alters the, the DNA some, and then that effect persists long-term. Interesting. Well, now your work suggests antidepressant use is a risk factor and not a cause, right? Yes, and then what we also showed, which was interesting, and this has, is just coming out, is that I had those results in animals, so can we look at this in people? So I worked with a colleague in Australia that had a database, a population that he had been following for five years. So he had data on antidepressant use. And this is a combination of people with past use and current use, but people who had been exposed to antidepressants. And it's very interesting because uh, if you look at a weight gain on people who were on a healthy diet or what's called the Mediterranean diet, that's more uh, fruits and vegetables and an uh, overall healthier diet, they gain a little bit of weight over that period of time. And then the people who were on like a equivalent of like a fast food diet or Western diet, they gain about four times more weight in the same period. So the conclusion of the paper is that antidepressant use potentiates the weight gain that's caused by um, Western diet. So potentiates, does that mean it causes? Or it makes it to, worse. It makes, makes it, it worse. worse. So yes, if you are on Western diet, you gain weight, and the animals on uh, the high-fat uh, food they gained weight. But then, if you are, had been exposed to antidepressants, you gain even more than you would otherwise get. Oh. Well, I've got a couple more questions, but first, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Julio Licinio, Dean of the College of Medicine at Upstate. Um, is there reason to suspect that obesity increases the risk of depression or that depression increases the risk of obesity? So I've looked a lot into that question. There are uh, very good um, community-based epidemiological studies from the best one that I could find was from Alameda County, California, that people were followed for very long periods of time, for several years. And what's very interesting is that some people begin obese, so they're not depressed, and as they are tested over time, after many years, they become depressed, and vice versa. So some people begin with depression and don't have increased weight, and as time passes, they gain more weight than you know people who don't have depression. So it's really um, like you know an arrow that goes both ways. So if you you can begin with obesity and you end up depressed, or you can begin with depression and you end up with obesity. So there's no answer to which starts, which came first. No. They're, they're connected? Yes. Okay. Well, let me ask you, how is the human genome being used to predict depression in populations of people? So there are a number of very large 
population studies now trying to look at the genetic base of a number of diseases, including uh, in psychiatry, and so many findings have been made in schizophrenia. And in depression, the results are just coming out very recently, so there are uh, a few recent studies that show findings in depression. So, as I said before, depression is a very multifactorial disease, just like obesity, both of them. So it's not like that one thing causes depression, so there is life experience, there is environment, there is culture, there is, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder that leads to depression as well, and also genetics. So the genes are one of many factors. So when you have something that's not so purely genetic, you need very large uh, numbers of people to show it. So the current studies have like 20,000 people, 50,000. It's been uh, calculated that to really show the genetics of depression, you would need 100,000 people. So um, the genetic facts are there, but they're relatively small, and then you need these large samples to show them. And, and one area that I think is very important in this uh, field is what we call pharmacogenetics. So it's looking not so much at the genetics of the disease, but the genetics of treatment response. So one of the things that's amazing about depression, I mean, it's, with, it's true with many diseases, or with essentially everything that we treat, that some people respond very well to the treatment and other people have no effect. So you give antidepressants to some people who are really substantially depressed, and they get completely better, they go back to work, they go back to functioning, and they go what we call a total remission. And other people who appear to be equally depressed to begin with have very similar symptoms. You give the same medication or same types of medication, and they don't respond at all. Well, some it seems to work in, and some it seems not to work exactly. in. Exactly. So why is that? So I think that genetics can help us identify that. And that would uh, be really useful in terms of clinical treatment because right now we don't know which medication is going to work on which person. So every treatment is essentially a trial and error effort. So we give this drug, I hope it's going to work. If it does, great. If it doesn't, then you have to keep taking it for a while to try it out, make sure if, if it works or not. But then if it eventually doesn't work, then you have to stop that drug and then, uh, you know, go off medication for a little bit and then try something else. And then if the second one doesn't work, you then you try the third one. And a lot of people uh, get lost to treatment in the process. They just give up and they become uh, chronic depressed patients. Well, because it's a long-term thing. If you're, you have to try it long enough to see whether yes. it works. I mean, at least a month. Weeks? At least a month. Okay. And some people, they actually have side effects. So some people, if it just doesn't work, it's bad enough. But some people it doesn't work, and they also feel even worse with the side effects that with the drug. So uh, there is a very interesting case that I'm uh, aware of. I, you know, saw it in the popular media. Of uh, I'm originally from Brazil, so there was a very famous uh, theater director there, who essentially revolutionized uh, Brazilian theater, and he just disappeared for about ten years, and it was depression. So he had a really bad episode. And then I was treated, had a lot of side effects, tried a couple of medications, didn't work. Then he just gave up and became almost like a recluse for 10 years. And then he got treated 10 years later, responded and went back to work. But if you think you lose 10 years of your productive life to something that could be treated, if you had given that medication that worked at the beginning, then a person would not have gone through this. So I think a major uh, target for current research is you know, pharmacogenetics, which is now called uh, personalized medicine or precision medicine, which is trying to identify which drug is going to work for which person before you give it. Let me ask you this. on If you looked at someone, an individual's human genome, 
is do do we know yet how to tell whether they're depressed by looking at their genome? Do you know we are actually doing that uh, type of um, research right now? So we developed some uh, mathematical methods to look at the person's entire genomic data and predict if you are going to be depressed or not. So some of our papers published this year actually can predict that in some populations, but not in others. Huh. But it's a field that's just beginning. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. My guest has been the Dean of the College of Medicine at Upstate, Dr. Julio Licinio. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. One of the fears we associate with aging is losing our memory, not being able to speak and be understood. Here are two poems that capture the frustration, the fear that can come from such forgetting. Robin Talbert grew up in Cliffside, North Carolina. She's the former president of the AARP Foundation. Here is her poem, Fork Getting. The experts say it's okay to forget a word, a name of a place or a person, normal aging. It's okay to forget the word for fork. Only worry when you see the fork and can't recall the function. What for the fork? Worry then. Normal, that familiar words become curious. Sounds get tangled up by tongue or brain. Pumpernickel, sorry, I meant pumpkin. Paramount, uh, no, parallel. Perplexed, yes, you. The correct term hidden, just beyond grasp. The word, a missing sock. I know it's somewhere in the back of the drawer. I will find it only when I stop looking. Lucinda Watson offers a starker glimpse in her poem, Getting Around Town. It was late morning when she first forgot where she lived. In deep November in northern Vermont, and the car heater was still working, puffing prodigiously on the way to town. Crossing her eyes with desperation in the post office, she turned away from the simple white paper with cold black lines and drew a rabbit on the Formica table, lying like a mortician's tableau below her. She turned her head very slowly, as an owl does, not disturbing the hump in her spine, when wondering who you might be, her owl eyes clicking a slow semicircle to the left of the line of mailers, waiting to post money or love, hate or anger, give or take. She was looking for who she was. She would be any of them in the blink of an eye if they would let her. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, 
HealthLink explores autism research taking place here in Syracuse. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.